You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church. I'm Sean Powers, um, the pastor on staff here. And it's, it is a wonderful um, day to gather together and to give praise to Jesus and to thank him for all that he has done in this last year. Uh, really, um, if you had asked me uh, a year ago or over a year ago that uh, we'd be meeting regularly uh, with you folks, I would be thrilled. And all the praise and glory does go to God for what he has done. So today, if you don't know and you're a guest, it is our membership Sunday, which basically means I'm going to preach. So I'm just going to let you know the kind of the tenor of the rest of the service. I'm going to preach and then... I'm going to ask you to take vows, and then I'm going to take vows as well as a pastor. And so that's where we're going to go. Normally, uh, we've been having uh, our Redemption Hill kids. I've, we've chosen to keep all the kids in the service in an attempt to keep all the individuals, all the adults in the service as well. So if things get a little squirrely, it's all good. It, it's, it's all great. We're family. Things happen. There are kids. It's fine. If you want to take a kiddo out because he's a little restless, there's, you just go to the foyer area. There'll be a place, place to sit. Well, you can probably tell we're not in Acts today, right? Um, we've been going through the book of Acts, and uh, it's been a, a wonderful journey up to this point, but I've decided to take a pause in light of this being a membership Sunday and preach from another text that we find in Scripture that, that, is, that is more pointed toward why we're gathering here and the emphasis of this morning. And it is that question that I've been pondering throughout the week and I've been mulling over as I've been looking at the Scriptures, and it's this, why do we gather you ever think about that? Like, why do we show up? Uh, why do we come here every Sunday morning? Why do we commit ourselves to uh, our you know, midweek community groups? Why do folks in this church commit to be in each other's lives in so many ways that I don't even see, right? Like, organic things are happening where people are gathering. Coffees, people are having coffee together. People are giving meals to one another. People are inviting each other over for dinner, things like that. Why do we do that? It's all this for. Well, the, I think the New Testament gives us many answers to these questions. Uh, for, for example, uh, Ephesians 5.19 says, We sing hymns, songs, and spiritual songs together as we worship God. That's the reason why we gather. We're singing together. We're worshiping Jesus together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 is clear that we need each other. Um, each member in the local church has a purpose. While we are one body in Christ, there are many members. And guess what? Each member of the local church has gifts to offer the local church. So all y'all who are going to become members in a little bit, you have something to contribute to the local church. God has given you gifts. That's another reason why we, we gather. So those gifts can be used to bless others. Another text that I could go to, uh, Galatians 6 we're actually called as brothers and sisters in Christ to carry each other's burdens, right? Had a bad day? Well, guess what? You got a brother or sister in Christ to help you carry those burdens. That same text also says we need to keep watch over each other, right? We can't do this alone. We need each other. Um, all these scriptural examples, and, and there are more, uh, were written uh, by the Apostle Paul, and I think this, this is worth mentioning, written to local churches. 
right? So when he's writing, he isn't writing generally, although that is the case now in some sense, right? But specifically in that time, he's writing to local churches. So that's what he has in mind. That's his context. And in one sense, what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to connect your theology or he's trying to connect your understanding about God with everyday life. So what do you believe about God? What do you know to be true about Jesus? Well, is that being connected to how you live? I think it's abundantly clear in the New Testament, God establishes local churches so that we can experience grace that comes through a local church. We can experience community together, true biblical community. And we can walk together as we individually strive to live in a manner worthy of Christ. To live in a manner worthy of Christ, that comes from Colossians, or live in a manner worthy of the gospel from Philippians. That's what we want to do. I mean, think of it this way. I I don't think you'll understand, at least fully, the depth of Christ-like love when you are disconnected from a local church, if you're a Christian. Kind of a bold statement. After I wrote it, I'm like, I could get some pushback in that one, but I think it's true. You cannot experience genuine biblical community when you are not a part of a local church. No, no one's going to spur you on to become more like Jesus unless you've got other brothers and sisters around you to what? To spur you on. Sure, these things can happen outside the local church, for sure. I'm not dismissing that. i got friends all over this world, brothers and sisters all over this world, where I go visit them. They're speaking into my life. That's a good thing. But there's something unique about the local church. God has designed the local church to ensure all these things are happening happening intentionally. So there's an intentionality behind it. The local church is kind of like a group of people climbing up a steep mountain. I would never do this because I'm not insane. But some people like this, right? You're climbing up a steep mountain with a bunch of people and they're all connected to a rope, Right? And guess what? Y'all live together, and y'all die together. It's kind of like the local church. Until Jesus comes back, God has established the local church for your growth in godliness and for the evangelism of the world, which is what we're seeing in Acts, right? Words getting preached. Churches are growing People are getting saved. Evangelism. That's why local church exists. And all of this, how you live in the evangelism of the world is for the honor and glory of God. I could sum up, I think, why this local, Redemption Hill Church, why this local church has been established and why we gather together like this. We gather to glorify God Right? For the glory of God. We've even printed it on a poster. That's how much it means to us. We exist to glorify God. We also exist to love each other well. With the same love that Christ love, loves us, we want to extend that to others. So that's another reason why we exist. 
We also exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone who has ears to hear, to glorify God, to love each other well, and to proclaim the gospel. So this morning, I want to look at one passage, as we have already read, from the book of Hebrews, which helps explain the gospel and helps explain why we gather, in addition to those texts I mentioned right at the beginning. So before looking at Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, I want to sum up the book of Hebrews for you. Right? Never read it? No problem. I'll tell you, this, this is how you can understand the book of Hebrews. Ready? Three words. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. If you would put me into a corner and say, sum up the book of Hebrews, three words, I'll say, Jesus is greater. Period. Jesus is undoubtedly greater. If you haven't studied Hebrews, the flow is that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the great high priest in the order of, it says in Hebrews, Melchizedek. In other words, there's this guy, Melchizedek, who's kind of the guy in the Old Testament, even above this Levitical priesthood thing they got going on. And Jesus is in that line because he's the great high priest. It says in Hebrews, Jesus is also the greatest sacrifice, which It is this last point which begins to inform the passage we're looking at this morning. So Jesus is greater. Before we read in Hebrews 10, we actually read this from Hebrews 9. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once and for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus came. He incarnated himself, lived a perfect life, was on mission to die. He knew what he needed to do, even though the road was hard. And he became a sacrifice. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Now we've got thinking ahead here. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. Jesus came, he's coming back. But he's not going to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And as a local church, we eagerly wait the return of Christ. So, Jesus was on mission to save his people, his elect people, and he continues to be on mission. That mission that Jesus began has not stopped. Then leading up to verse 19 of our passage today, the author goes on to explain how this old way, the old covenant, has been removed and replaced by this new way, this new covenant, the old way having this focus on law and repeated sacrifice, this new way being Jesus, the greatest and final sacrifice for sin. Now, if I were to sit down uh, with a Jewish friend and read Hebrews 10, it is likely he would understand the depth of what is being communicated probably more than most Christians, actually in terms of the symbolism going on here. I mean, look at verses 19 to 22. What are the holy places in verse 19? Like, you read that and you're like, what is he talking about? What does a curtain have to do with the sacrifice of Jesus? Verse 20, right? Like, what's up with the high priest? If you've been tracking tracking with us through Acts, uh, the high priest or the priest were always the adversaries to the church growth. They're the oppressors. So like they're the guys going after John and Peter and persecuting them. But now we see high priest here used a, bit, a little bit differently. And then in verse 2, there's verbiage about 
hearts being sprinkled and bodies being washed with pure water, right? I mean, anybody using that language recently? No, not really. But all of these images are connected with Jewish theology, and they're now being used metaphorically to describe the work of Christ. The author of Hebrews is reaching back to Jewish practices, trying to explain why Jesus is the final and greatest sacrifice for sin, and why faith in Jesus should spur us on in our faith. So there, there's a lot to untangle, but what I think is needs to be said about this passage is that what we believe to be true about God and our faith is connected with how we live. That's what we read in this passage. And the author is using this Jewish symbolism to kind of describe it. What we believe and how we live helps explain why we gather as a local church. The first word in verse 19 is an indicator of a transition of thought taking place in Hebrews. It's this word, therefore. So whenever you see the word therefore in your Bible, you've got to think about Okay, what became before? Prior to verse 19, we read a wonderful exposition of why Jesus is the great high priest and the final sacrifice. Then we got this summary statement in verses 19 to 21. Then leading up to verse 25, we read of three horatory subjunctives. Now, if you're an English major, I just made your day. I mentioned horatory subjunctives. If you're not an English major, like me, you had to figure out what that was by Googling it. But we got three horatory subjunctives, verse 22, verse 23, verse 24. If you didn't know what that was, I'm going to tell you now, because this is what I learned this week. Horatory subjunctives are exhortations a speaker uses to exhort or encourage others to join them in doing something. So it would be like me saying this, hey, let's all go to the Waukee Community Center right after church so we can eat. Right? Let's all go. Who's coming with me? You ever seen Jerry Maguire where he's holding the bag up with the fish and he's leaving? Who's coming with me? Who's coming? Or let's go play basketball together. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you all in to join me. And that's kind of what we read in this passage. I'm trying to exhort you or encourage you to join me to a certain end. And that's what we see in Hebrews 10. In verse 22 it says, let us draw near. In verse 23, it says, let us hold fast. Verse 24, it says, let us consider. All three subjunctives leading toward a certain action. So let's look at this summary statement that I mentioned beginning in verse 19. Then we'll look at these three let us statements and see where they indeed lead us. Here's the summary statement one more time. Therefore, so new thought taking place, kind of a transition. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, dot, dot, dot. So back to my question earlier, what are the holy places here? What's, what's, what do we do with this curtain? To understand these terms, we've got to understand the Jewish tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was a gathering point for God's people. We read about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. So you're going to run into that as you kind of flip through Genesis and into Exodus and going through the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We've got this, we've got this tabernacle. The tabernacle is how Israel understood what it means to be in the presence of God. It's in the tabernacle where sacrifices were made for the forgiveness of 
sins. Because here's the fundamental problem that the tabernacle sacrifices were trying to solve. Evil exists all around us. And the place where evil resides is the human heart. And the question is, how can a good, just, and holy God be in the presence of evil? Well, he can't. Something needs to be done. So instead of wiping out humanity and all the evil and sin that humanity causes, God provides another way of forgiveness. He provides another way to blot out sin. In the Old Testament, for you to be, given, to be forgiven of your sin, this is what needed to happen. This, there needed to be, excuse me, an animal sacrifice. And I'm not talking about me butchering my ducks at home. I'm talking about a legitimate sacrifice with a purpose. I know it seems foreign to us. I, I grant that. It seems foreign to us. But we need to remember that we live in a vastly different time and culture than Israel in the book of Exodus. We've got to admit that. The animal sacrifices symbolize the death that God's people deserved because of their sin. And we call this atonement. I use that language a lot. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus. We're jumping back to Exodus and getting this word here, atonement. And when the animal died, the blood was taken and sprinkled on this tabernacle. This was symbolic for purification. All this would have made sense if you're a Jew. If you're a Jew, you're like, ah, I, I see where he's going. Might not agree, right? But I understand what they're trying to say. Right? So I know this imagery is strange to our sensibilities, but don't let that become a barrier for you to see the purpose. Let me explain a little more about the tabernacle. The tabernacle had three rooms. So you got this outer sanctuary, and then you had this holy place, and then you had the, the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Depending on who you are, your status, you're able to enter into these different rooms. Now, I know in my description, I'm not doing the tabernacle justice, but here's what you need to know, is that this was a big deal because it was there where one could experience the presence of God in this most holy, holy place, the holy of holies. Like, if you wanted to experience the presence of God, that's where you went. Only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the most holy place and make an animal sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins for the people. Once a year. Once a year. That's it. The idea is that the sinless animal would be a sacrifice on the, on the behalf of sinless, sinful people. Excuse me. The curtain referenced in verse 20 was, a, was thick and acted like a wall between the holy place, which the, all the priests were able to go, and the most holy place, which only the high priest was able to go. The curtain is what separated everyone from the presence of God. Again, I'm trying to help you understand the tabernacle so you can understand today's particular passage. All that's kind of the backdrop of how we make sense of verses 19 to 21. So, Jesus, when he's, he's called the great high priest in verse 21, and he's call, also called the ultimate sacrifice. Because as the great high priest, he, the sinless son of God, is able to enter the presence of God. And he, sacrificing himself on the cross and spilling his own blood for the sin of his people, provides a new way 
for God's people to enter the presence of God. So through faith in the atoning death of Christ and by his blood, we're now able to get behind the curtain. Like That is a massive change. It's a massive change. Um, I'm trying to think of an example how to, how to connect this. And I was thinking about um, growing up in the Powers household during uh, the Christmas season. Um, Powers household meaning, you know, I was like, you know, five, six, back in Dubuque. In our house, there was this uh, forbidden room. Like, we couldn't go in there. It was a room that was located right off my parents' bedroom. And uh, it was in this room where all the Christmas presents were located, right? Except from the ones from Santa, of course. And only once a year did my mom and dad finally take these presents out of the forbidden room and place them under the Christmas tree, right? What Christ has done by allowing his people to go behind the curtain would be like all four of us boys growing up and having access to that forbidden room every single day, every day of the year. Presence all the time. So hopefully you see how the imagery connects with Christ. And because Christ is the great high priest and the final and ultimate sacrifice for anyone who has faith in him, we can draw near to God. All that imagery was leading to this first subjunctive in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. So yeah, there's more imagery here, right? But first see the depth of your faith. Because of Christ and the faith he has given you, you can have full assurance. You can be assured that God loves you. You can have full assurance that his favor Regardless of your circumstances, I don't know how your morning went before you got here. But regardless of your circumstances, his favor is still upon you. His love is still upon you. You can have full assurance because of the faith that you have in Christ. So receive that exhortation in verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a true heart. Christian, before you were saved, your heart was cold and dead. Cold and dead. When you were saved, God took out your stony heart and gave you a true heart alive with faith. Listen, because we're human and there is remaining sin, we can be tempted to believe the lie. I don't know if you believe, try, you know, if you've tried to believe this lie before, but you can believe the lie that you can't approach God. But the good news is that your justification, your salvation, was an act of grace and mercy by God. God is the one who saved you. You didn't save yourself. And it is because of Christ that you have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And your body has been washed pure. 
verse 22, at the end of verse 22. The point, the, the latter part of verse 22, the point is that when you were saved, your constitution before God changed. When you were saved by the blood of Christ, God now views you as a changed person. So the problem that some Christians have is that remaining sin can become an anchor that they feel like they can't approach God. It's like they got a, they got a chain, there's an anchor, it's on their foot, and they're just, I can't, I can't do it. And that's part of the lie. But the love of God is that he sees your sin and says, come to me. He sees your suffering and he says, come to me. He sees your pain and he says, come to me. Because of faith in Christ and because of the righteousness of Christ, you can approach God and he doesn't reject you. He doesn't reject you. But he helps you kill remaining sin. He helps you in your suffering. God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, leads you to kill remaining sin. So once again, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I don't know about you, it's how I grew up, right? You did something wrong, and it's like vengeance. Angry God coming down. It's not what we read here. We read of a God who saves people, keeps people, walks with broken and hurting sons and daughters so that they can grow in their relationship and love for him. We can have full assurance in our faith. And I would also add this, based upon this verse, there is no other way to draw near to God than than through the blood of Jesus. In our pluralistic culture that says there are many ways to approach God, here we see there is only one way to approach God, and that is by faith in what God has done in Christ. It's an exclusive statement. There's no doubt about it. But it's beautiful. So this local church will only preach one way for a person to draw near to God. By Christ's blood, we have been washed clean and are therefore able to approach God. There is no yoga instructor, there's no new age teacher or personal inner light that allows a person to draw near to a holy God. Instead, it is in Christ in which we have confidence. It is purely the work of Christ that we can have confidence. I want you to pick up on what the author of Hebrews says earlier in his sermon. The whole entire book of Hebrews is a sermon. Because we are in Christ, it says in Hebrews 4, let us then, another, another oratory subjunctive for you people, the English people, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, if you struggle with assurance of faith, that's where you're at today or you've been there in the past. Let these passages bring comfort to your soul. Boldly approach God in faith. The second subjunctive is verse 23. Uh, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Notice another point of action here. First, you were encouraged to draw near to God. Now God's word says, hold fast. 
the picture in my mind right now is like you're, you're on a roller coaster, right? And I know the people do this thing, but that's not me. I'm like this, holding on. I mean, I'm trusting the thing's not going to break off and send me loose, but I'm holding on anyways. I'm holding fast. And all you crazy people want to throw your hands up in the air, fine. Not this guy. I'm holding fast. You need to hold fast to what you know to be true. It's worth pointing out that our faith in God requires movement from us. Right? In other words, we are not passive, but we are active in our faith. Christianity is not saying a prayer, getting saved, and then thinking it's all good, and I'm going to put my feet up on the recliner and watch college football, and then I'm done. That's not the Christianity we read in the New Testament. No, faith spurs us into action. And as it pertains to verse 23, we need to hold fast to what we know to be true and do so without wavering. In particular, we are called to hold fast to hope. Of, of all the things we are hold, to hold fast to, it says hope. So I think there's like a, this big theological word here, there's this eschatological thought behind the word hope. In other words, God's word wants us to consider our present circumstances in light of what is to come. So as a Christian, we're, we're looking back to what Christ has done, and we're looking forward to what Christ is going to do. There will be a day when Jesus will come back to redeem his elect people and to restore all things. You see, we live in a broken world. We live in a world where death, suffering, decay, and sin remain. So while our present circumstances can seem crushing, we've all been there. So things are happening and it's like, I can't get this weight off. It's crushing. Well, while that happens, we ultimately know it will not ruin us. It will not ruin us. Because there will be a day, a new day, when everything is made right. That is what hope is referring to in this passage. So we can live knowing that he who promised is faithful. That's the end of verse 23. He who promised, who made the promise, he's faithful. He's going to see it through. He's not giving up on you. He's not. Notice that while we are spurred into action, our hope is ultimately not placed in our actions. It's so important to see that. Pastoral confession point, man, how many times do I, do I try to lean into my own actions and have faith in that? That's not what this says. We can rest upon the faithfulness of God. So think, think about how this transformative truth um, can be when your life goes sideways, right? A life... Life does go sideways. Think about how transformative this truth can be when you are suffering. Holding fast to what is to come can lead you through the darkest days of your life. Christian, just as much as you trust God's faithfulness to save you, right? Just as much as you trust in that truth, 
You can trust in God for the day when he will finally rescue you, rescue you from the pain and suffering that inflicts you and that remains in this world. We can hold fast to hope. Man, if you get, of all the three <laughs> exhortations, you get that one, man, that'll anchor you. That'll anchor you. Here is the last exhortation or like action item that we're called to take because of faith in Christ. If the first two exhortations were like uh, vertical, about our vertical relationship with God, this, this last exhortation is about like our horizontal relationship with each other. Which is why I picked pick this passage, right? I want to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about what it means to live life together horizontally here as a local church. Here's verses 24 and 25. Let us consider. So again, who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? Let us consider. Who's going to consider with me? Let us consider to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. That's a little warning. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, capital D. So again, we've got this focus on what is to come. Jesus is going to come back. There will be a day. But until that day, we gather, we stir each other up, we love, we provoke each other to good works. We need to be intentional in how we interact with one another in the body of Christ, in the church. This idea of stirring up one another literally means to provoke right? Provoke. Now, if I were to transport you back to my house, um, I don't know how old I am, 38 minus 30, okay, eight years old, all right, I do the math. Slow, I'm slow in the uptick. When I was eight, with my twin brother, my two older brothers who are twins, so eight plus six, but 14, okay, good, we're there. If I would transport you back to that day, you would have saw a lot of provoking, right? Not in a good way, yeah, sinful provoking, like throwing stuff at each other and pushing each other and, you know, jumping off couches and onto us while we're watching TV from behind, like that kind of provoking, right? And if you're a sibling, you know what I'm talking about. If you got brothers and sisters, you know what I'm talking about. But when, when is provoking acceptable? Because that's, again, that's what this means here. When it leads another person to a greater love for God in others, right? It's acceptable when it spurs our brother and sister in Christ to do good works. As a church community, we want to love well. When our good works, when we do our good works, excuse me, those are demonstrations of love toward each other, right? So I'm giving you all permission. There's one way where provoking is acceptable. When, you are, when you're provoking others into loving well and into good works, Man, so we also want to consider how to lovingly encourage one another. So we've got this provoking thing, and then we've got this encouraging thing going on. And here's Hebrews 3.13, which connects with um, Hebrews 10, verse 25. But exhort one another. That exhort could also be translated encourage. So encourage or exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So again, we're talking about horizontal relationships here, what we're, what we're doing with one another in this local church. So how do we practically work out Hebrews 3.13? Your encouragement is a powerful tool to help other people fight sin. What I'm not saying is that there's not a place for calling a brother or sister out, be like, dude, you got to knock that off. Right? There is a place for that. But it's interesting that he says we need to encourage one another, exhort one another. Think about the last time you were genuinely encouraged. How, how did that land on you? How did you respond? Like, it usually spurs us on. We're like, thanks. <laughs> I needed that today. So that's another aspect. Provoke one another to love and good works, and we want to encourage one another. I have a couple more thoughts about the implications of verses 24 and 25. First, it is clear that Christianity is to be done in community, in the local church. I've said this over and over. While Jesus saves a person into his universal church, like I got brothers and sisters all over the, gro- all over the globe, all across this metro, right? That's, that's true. The, God also saves people into local churches where love and good works are expressed. Like, I got friends in Zambia. It is difficult for me to express love and good works on a regular basis with my brothers and sisters in Zambia. So what do we have? We have a local church where, those, where all that is expressed. Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again. There is no such thing as homeless Christianity. No such thing. Not in the New Testament. Can't find it. It does not exist in the Bible. So when we gather together and we are looking vertical up to God in worship and living out horizontally in our relationships with one another, we are living out God's design. A couple more thoughts about verses 24 and 25. A Christ-centered and Christ-focused local church is a foretaste of what is to come in heaven. You ever think about that? We don't think about that often. Meeting together with other believers on earth should look forward to the day where we gather with Jesus in heaven. Which should be obvious, but we don't talk about it enough. Redemption Hill Church gathers together with brothers and sisters in Christ, and there will be a day when all brothers and sisters in Christ will be together. So this is like a, a reflection or, or a shadow of a greater thing. The greatest compliment I've ever received up to this point about Redemption Hill Church, and I like to see it, I like this. And I love to hear more. Is this? Is that we love others well, right? That's amazing. I love. I'm like, thank you. To which I will add, the love of Christ we extend to others and receive from others is a foretaste of the love that we will experience when we are with Jesus in heaven. Last thought regarding this particular verse or verses. Let's not miss the exhortation to not neglect to gather together. Verse 25. 
I think of all the encouragements or exhortations that we read in this passage, this, this might be the most difficult to live out and perhaps the most difficult to hear, right? Especially in our culture where everyone's go, 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 go. Right? we got a thousand things we can do. And, and honestly, if I threw up the whiteboard right here and say, what are the excuses that we can use to not to gather together, it'd be filled in a hot tick. It won't take long. We'd fill it. So we, know, we all know those. We can, we can think about those. But So instead of going after excuses, here, here's what I want to say. There should not be a more precious place on earth than for you to be with the body of Christ, for you to live life in the local church. It does not matter your IQ, your theological acumen, your giftedness, how many Bible verses you have or have not memorized. It does not matter if you just became a Christian or if you've been walking with the Lord for 40 years. This local church, any local church, needs to be a place where you can grow in your relationship with God as others come around you and help you grow. This local church is a place that when your life is hard, you do receive encouragement. This local church is a place where you are going through suffering, guess what? Brothers and sisters are around you to help carry that burden for you. This local church is a place that will constantly encourage you to find your hope in Jesus. You will be pointed to Jesus from this pulpit and when you're talking with a friend after church. If you want to live your Christian life as God designed it. Moving toward the local church is essential because then you can begin to receive that all God has for you in the context of the local church. So in closing, when we gather, let us be bold knowing that Christ has granted us access to God through his death. Let us be bold. Let us draw near with full assurance of faith, knowing that our lives have been purchased by God. We can have full assurance. Rest in that. Let us never neglect neglect to meet together, knowing that God has placed you in a local church where he is glorified, where you are spurred on, to become more like your Savior, Jesus.